For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Abortions are now a crime in the state of Oklahoma following the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and trigger legislation from state legislative Republicans. Neva, what exactly does this ruling mean for Oklahoma? Well, I think it means uh, what Oklahoma Oklahomans, I think the majority for a long time, have uh, been hoping for, and that was a, in the reversal of Roe versus Wade, it will, would allow Oklahoma to uh, be a state where performing abor- abortions would, in fact, be illegal, and uh, except in some instances, such as in the case of the to save the life of the mother. So I think um, I think this is uh, as we talked about forever on this show. It's a controversial subject. It's one that is a politically charged issue that will be with us through the course of this political season and perhaps beyond. But I think in Oklahoma, what we see is by and large, Oklahomans are very happy with the reversal and very happy with what legislators have done to put the trigger law in place. And for the attorney general uh, last week to, in fact, once the uh, Supreme Court decision was Uh, was done, he certified that so that the trigger banning abortion law could in fact take place. Ryan. Well, you know, I think that this is going to be nothing short of catastrophic for a lot of women right here in Oklahoma and uh, and their families. This is, you know, and I know that, uh, you know, Neva says that a lot of Oklahomans are celebrating the end of Roe, but if you look at a recent poll that Amber Integrated did with, uh, I believe, likely Republican primary voters, they didn't even have 50% of Republican voters uh, that agreed with the kind of total ban that we have in Oklahoma right now. Uh, so, you know, there is this disconnect between uh, what the legislature is doing and even Republican primary voters. But because of the way that we run these elections in Oklahoma, and we have uh, elections where people are often elected in these Republican primaries, uh, and they feel that they've got to speak to these or Republican elect uh, runoffs, you know, we've got kind of this, this, uh, this narrative that's disconnected from reality. And the reality is that We've seen for and, you know, ever since I've been in the legislature and before, really ever since Roe, uh, you know, uh, ever since, you know, for the last 50 years, the Democratic strategy on abortion rights has been to hope that we have enough justices on the Supreme Court so that at any given moment, if one doesn't wake up in the morning, uh, that we've got at least five votes to protect Roe and Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. That's failed. Uh, that didn't work. And so it is back in the states now. And I think that when we begin to have this Democratic conversation about it, it's not going to be as simple as yes on Roe or no on Roe or abortion on demand or no abortion, uh, I think Oklahomans really do, uh, Republicans and Democrats, believe that there ought to be some access up to a certain point that's largely unregulated by the state. And then beyond that, there could be some reasonable restrictions. Um, But where we're at right now is that legislators have been passing these laws to increasingly curtail abortions. But until this decision, most women in Oklahoma were within a day's drive of a clinic. Uh, they could get somewhere and have access to abortion and an abortion. That's not going to happen now. The constitutional backstop that has kept lawmakers from having to face the real consequences of these legisla- of these pieces of legislation is gone. And so now, uh, between in the near term, before there's any sort of democratic response to this, and by democratic, I don't mean partisan, but a response among our elected officials, uh, we're going to see some near term near term catastrophic consequences that Republican lawmakers that have been voting for these pieces of legislation and even Democratic lawmakers going back into the not-too-distant past are going to have to face the consequences. 
Well, it's interesting, though. This whole subject from an Oklahoma perspective is about 50 years of the, as you talk about the Democrat strategy, nationally, it's been one to become more and more extreme on the whole issue of abortion rights, as they call it. And because of that, I think we have seen this continued pushback uh, at the at the state level with Oklahomans believing that that is not what they want to see. They don't want this, uh, they don't want this situation to be what it had evolved into over time. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at really, regardless of polls and many of those polls, it's purely a question of how it's worded. I think we see that uh, we're going to have legislators continue to fight to make sure to protect life here in Oklahoma. Oklahomans voted in primaries across the state earlier this week in the race to fill the seat getting vacated by U.S. Senator Jim Inhofe. Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen fell just short of getting the 50 percent needed to avoid a runoff against State House Speaker T.W. Shannon. Ryan, how do you think Mullen will do in August? When you walk into a uh, runoff with that kind of a lead, I forget the numbers, but I remember Professor Keith Gaddy at the University of Oklahoma uh, you know, had, had a metric once that he shared with me whenever I was going into a runoff about if you're a certain number, a uh, certain percentage point ahead going into the runoff, that your likelihood of winning was you know, exponentially higher or lower. Uh, I think when you walk into a uh, runoff with that kind of a lead, you're, you're you're, you're exponentially uh, going to probably win. I mean, it, it's really difficult like to 25 see. points ahead. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean that, that's a, it's an enormous spread. Uh, you know, I know that, you know, T.W. Uh, Shannon, former Speaker T.W. Shannon, came in in second, but it was a very distant second. And, you know, the real competition uh, in that race was who was going to be in second place. Uh, and, you know, you had, you know, Nathan Dom coming in third. And then Scott Pruitt just, you know, dragging up the rear in terms of, uh, you know, what we would consider is, you know, mainstream, credible candidates uh, that entered the race. Of course, he entered late, but still he had, you know, a tremendous amount of name recognition in the state, very high national profile. Uh, and then to come in uh, fourth behind a, a, sitting, a sitting state senator who has kind of become a perennial candidate, uh, you know, far right candidate in these races. So, uh, you know, that was interesting. So the race for who was going to be second, but with that big of a, a spread, there has to be, you know, some real uh, moment that happens between now and the runoff. Now, whether that is, uh, you know, the tribes coalescing around T.W. Shannon, um, which they, they, they may very well do, especially now that we have the Huerta decision that came out of the United States Supreme Court that I know that we'll be talking about more mm-hmm. in the weeks to come on this program. But, you know, just even looking at that decision, the, the dissenting opinion in that um, uh, written by Justice Gorsuch, invites Congress to step into the fray and begin to try to resolve some of uh, the outstanding issues of, of McGirt and Huerta with congressional action rather than having the court settle this on a dispute-by-dispute basis. So the tribes may have a very uh, increased motive. They may have an increased motivation now to have friendly members in Congress that would work on those resolutions. And between T.W. Shannon and Mark Wayne Mullen, that's not a difficult choice for the tribes. Neva. Well, I mean, when we talk about the tribes, it's fascinating. We have to remember that we have two candidates, both with uh, tribal uh, tribal resumes. I mean, Mark Wayne Mullen is a Cherokee. T.W. Shannon is a Chickasaw. So you have two of the largest tribes being represented in the two uh, folks vying for the uh, Republican nomination now. And when we talked about kind of the spread going in, you're right, Ryan. I mean, when you start with a 93,000 
vote margin against the person that you're going to compete against with in the runoff, that is decisive. And that is a big hill to climb. I think we saw some initial uh, on the, uh, the election night uh, kind of give and take. We saw a little bit of what what is to come in terms of the um, the likely skirmishes between these two candidates. I mean, we had uh, Mark Wayne Mullen basically uh, uh, saying that uh, he was going to put the pedal to the metal and he was going to make sure to get the job done. And you had T.W. Shannon coming back. And basically his message was, I've kept my word. And that was many people felt uh, alluding to the fact that Mark Wayne Mullen had uh, made a pledge uh, that he would only serve three terms. He's now a five-term congressman running for a, uh, a, a U.S. Senate seat. So I think, uh, I think what remains to be seen is two things, how much these two candidates will swing at each other and how much independent money will come in and swing, uh, you know, trying to influence one way or the other this election. And we've already seen, interestingly enough, uh, as of uh, June, we've seen $10 million infused into these political campaigns total uh, from outside groups this cycle, about half of that in, uh, you know, in, in some of these bigger races. So it's, it's a big factor when you talk about an eight-week runoff uh, uh, campaign. And basically, uh, it's kind of like uh, the playoff in the World Series. You have to start over. You're going to have to get the votes again. You're going to have to get the folks to come back out uh, in late August. And so I think uh, all, all runoffs, and, and as Ryan said, he's, he's, he's experienced it himself. And certainly anyone that's uh, been involved in a runoff, you don't take anything for granted. You don't take a lead for granted. Uh, you don't give up because you're behind. Uh, you fight the new fight. And I think it will be a fascinating fascinating one to watch uh, for the next uh, for the next two months. In the Congressional District 2 Republican primary, State Representative Avery Fricks and former State Senator Josh Burking, uh, how one they're they're one first and second. However, no one in the field of 14 got more than 15 percent. Neva, how does this race look going into the August primary? <laughs> well, it's a brand new race. Uh, you've got now Avery Fritz and Josh Burkeen. Um, how all of these other folks uh, and their small pocket of voters, I mean, where they go now in a runoff, I think is anybody's question. And it really gets down to, again, the head-to-head -head competition. You have Avery Fritz, uh, certainly um, there, there are some things that I think bode well for him up front. I mean, uh, part of it's geography. I mean, you're looking at uh, him coming from a part of the district where it is more, uh, more population, where there has been better turnout historically, both in the primaries and the runoffs. Um, you have you have someone who, who is a current House member. Uh, his father and grandfather held the seat that he currently holds in the state house. Someone well-respected, chair of the Transportation Committee in the House, uh, successful businessman. So um, he's someone that comes to uh, comes to this race with a, with a resume versus a former state senator, Josh Perkeen, who in his two terms certainly uh, uh, became uh, well-known in more of the uh, what I would call the ultra-conservative wing of the party, folks that uh, um, that uh, have been involved in his campaign this time. Again, you know, m many of those folks uh, kind of 
regalvanized uh, people that had been involved. He he started and cut his teeth politically with uh, Dr. Tom, the late Dr. Tom Coburn. Uh, he was endorsed by co former Congressman Jim Bridenstine, which I felt, uh, as we talked about earlier um, in earlier programs about this, uh, was a significant endorsement. I think the other wild card in this was that there was dark money these groups that came in to attack Josh Burkeen uh, toward the end of the primary. And the question is, will they be back? And what really is their motivation? It may not be clear, but he did have gov former governor, Mike Huckabee from Arkansas, came out late uh, in, the, in the closing uh, weekend before the primary and basically said, look, this guy's getting attacked by not club for growth. He dubbed it club for greed and really took him head on. And so um, I think it sets the stage for whoever engages in this campaign on the outside peripheral to the two candidates, candidates themselves. It's going to uh, probably light it up and make it uh, much more intense. And I think the wild card, let's face it, is Will Mark Wayne Mullen and his folks really become interested and engaged in the in the second uh, district seat, the one that he is leaving? Um, no one knows at this point, I don't think. I certainly haven't heard all that much speculation, but it would be a factor because it is also the strength and base of Mark Wayne's um, natural constituency mm -hmm. that he will work very hard to bring back out, which normally we would say a runoff would be um, a time when turnout would drop. We may see something different uh, on in August where we may actually see a good turnout or a higher than normal turnout based on just the fact that we have more runoffs in these secondary races and some of these legislative seats uh, that may uh, push that more than we have seen in the past. Ryan. Well, I think you're right, Neva. Even if Mark Wayne Mullen doesn't endorse uh, either Burkine or Fricks in the, in the runoff, uh, there's going to be no doubt about the fact that it, it's going to be part of Mark Wayne Mullen's strategy to win that runoff to turn out his constituency and his uh, his kind of organic base in the second congressional district. So they're going to be the, the Mark Wayne Mullen camp, I'm sure, is going to be working very hard on voter turnout in the second district. So, uh, you know, combine that with what I think is going to be a, a very spirited, if, if not, you know, just outright slugfest between Fricks and Burkeen before this deal is over with. Um, if, if you've got that turnout may, is very likely to be above runoff averages here. Uh, you know, whether, whether we get to the point where we've got runoff, uh, turnout that's on par with primary, I don't know that we, we see that, but who knows? I mean, you know, a lot of those voters are the, the same voters that were engaged in that primary. So they, they, you know, may very well show up. I don't know that any of the other candidates are going to have constituencies that they can, you know, readily move. Um, you know, it's, it was, you know, just looking the election night, the election night returns on that. <clears throat> I had to get my reading glasses out because you're trying to, you know, look at the decimal points of like, who's going to, yeah. who's going to make the top two here. Uh, you know, this, this is really, this is really one of those instances, especially as, as we walk into this, uh, this runoff, um, where, uh, you know, voters, uh, had really no idea, I think for the most part, you know, how to separate out, you know, this many candidates in their minds, uh, you know, looking at some of the names on there, it's like, how in the heck did they even get a hundred votes? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but they did. And, and so, um, you know, now I think, you know, the, the race is going to be really crystallized between these two individuals and, um, you know, interesting, you know, one of the things that I've been, I've been considering, and it's not just, uh, in this seat, but also in this U S Senate, uh, runoff that we're going to, this U S Senate seat, uh, Republican runoff we're going to see between, uh, Mullen and T.W. Shannon. Um, this is all happening, you know, in the backdrop of the January 6th hearings in Congress. Mm 
Um, and I know that you know, every time that you know these candidates, uh, I'm pretty sure that everybody that's made the runoff, if they've been asked about these January 6th hearings, you know they've they've dismissed them as as, as partisan, as you know just a you know I think you know President former President Trump called it a kangaroo court. But you know, I've been listening to these things, and and if you listen to them, they're they're not they're not partisan at all. Are they an adversarial uh, criminal judicial proceeding? Absolutely not. But they're not supposed to be. Uh, you know that's not what that is. That that may very well come later. But when you listen to these hearings, it, it's not uh, you know Democrats you know talking a bunch of trash on on President Trump. It's ultra conservative Republicans uh, that stood in the breach uh, in on January sixth and in the days leading up to January sixth and did you know very heroic things uh, that you know ultimately saved our democratic process in the United States and that we got much closer to the brink than I think most of us can even begin to imagine. And so it is strange for me to hear that and to hear other Republicans around the, the country, and not just Liz Cheney, but other Republicans around the country, begin to you know, reckon with the fact that we've got to take our party back. And we've, I, I imagine that we're going to see quite the opposite in both of these runoffs in the, congress, the second congressional and the U.S. Senate race in Oklahoma, where we're going to see you know, candidates time and again pledge their fealty to President, former President Trump and ignore any of this evidence that's coming out of the January 6th hearing. Let me make one other point, kind of backing up to the, the conversation about the crowded primary, just as you um, mentioned. Uh, I think it is important to consider the fact that oftentimes in, in very, very crowded primaries, when you talk about a dozen or more candidates, you actually have a situation where sometimes the voter who goes to the polls in that primary leaves that one blank. They haven't made a decision. Mm. They won't just pick a box, you know, check a box. They will wait until it's down to the two-person race and then evaluate. And they are the voters that typically are coming back out. If they came out in a primary, they're likely to come back out in a runoff. So that does change the dynamic. And the other thing is all of these folks that ran um, it will be interesting to see how many of them endorse or if they do. And if there's a group of them, I mean, if you saw an, a significant number of these folks that ran, didn't make the runoff, that endorse a candidate psychologically in a runoff where people are looking to try to see some separation, try to make some distinction and, and get that third party validation, that could be a factor that uh, cannot be underestimated in terms of its effect. In a possible surprise to no one, Governor Stitt and State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister each won their gubernatorial primary races to face each other for the general election in November. Ryan, with the primary out of the way, what does Hoffmeister need to do to focus on Stitt? Well, I think that the the, the case against Governor Stitt has been you know, making itself, uh, even, even not just with Democratic voters, but with his Republican colleagues in the legislature who seem to you know, probably know him the best in terms of you know, the way that he operates as a governor. And so I think that there is this playbook for Joy Hoffmeister to run a, a campaign on transparency, accountability, uh, anti-corruption, uh, anti-cronyism, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that I think will resonate across uh, the political spectrum in the state of Oklahoma. Um, yeah, I, again, no surprise that, that Governor Stitt won his mm -hmm. primary. Uh, yeah, I think that that was a, uh, you know, a you know, that was a foregone conclusion. If Joel Kinsel uh, had started his campaign months earlier uh, and had raised some money to be able to compete, at least, you know, not not on par, he's not going to be able to raise the kind of money to compete on par with Governor Stitt, who has a, a war chest at his disposal and, and presumably uh, lots of uh, independent expenditures waiting in the wings. But 
if Joel Kinsel had been able to start earlier, I think that we may have seen a closer primary. But again, Governor Stitt walking in and an incumbent, your own primary, always the odds on favorite, uh, unless there's you know some you know, really uh, you know really uh, day of Mackinac kind of thing that just changes the game. But that just didn't happen. And you know, Joy Hoffmeister has to you know feel very good about uh, her her results in the Democratic primary. Uh, to, to garner that margin against uh, former state Senator Connie Johnson, who is you know, very well known among Democratic voters, very well respected among Democratic voters, and uh, to be able to still come out on top in that campaign and, and to do it in a way that didn't spend a lot of the campaign resources, you know, you know, never really was a, a negative campaign. It didn't divide the Democratic Party. You know, my, my sense is that Democrats now are united behind Joy Hoffmeister. I think that you know, the, the challenge for her is can she pick up, uh, you know, a, a huge chunk of independence and then get out, get some crossover Republicans that are, are tired of what they see at the Capitol is uh, kind of you know, insider business at the Capitol and, and uh, you know, you know, deals being cut in back rooms with with friends. Um, and can she capitalize on that to get get to the governor's mansion in November? And that's that's going to be, you know, when we talk about slugfest. The amount of money that's going to be spent on this gubernatorial campaign uh, is going to be tremendous. There is there is so much at stake for Oklahoma, and I think both sides uh, in this campaign are going to recognize what's on the line. Democrats see an opportunity in Joy Hoffmeister to to win a statewide election that they haven't felt like they really had for a very long time. Neva. Well, let's remember that uh, Republicans outnumber Democrats by nearly two to one. So that makes the uh, the battle an uphill battle to start. Uh, you have the fact that uh, the governor in his primary, um, uh, he he received about 146,000 votes, I think, more than what Hoffmeister received in hers. He got 69 percent of his primary vote. She got 61 percent. You're right, Ryan. I mean, in terms of just the money going in, I mean, I think uh, I think the stit uh, number was about five million uh, coming into the final stretch that had been raised. Uh, Hoffmeister's was right at a million or maybe a little over. So uh, a lot of money still to be raised and spent. But I think the other thing is when you talk about the fall election, still a long way off. But but the problem the Democrat nominee has is that they have to deal with the backdrop of Washington, D.C., a incredibly unpopular president and based on poll numbers in Oklahoma, absolutely the lowest I've ever seen. Uh, the fact that we have a very a very challenging economy, a gasoline prices. I mean, we can go down the list of all of the things that are on the minds of voters because those are pocketbook issues. And we talk about, you know, trying to localize elections. But when you talk about the big races, it still is about what are what is on the voters minds. And that is going to be more of a national perspective, I believe. And that is going to be a challenge for Joy Hoffmeister. And let's and let's uh, uh, also remember that I think uh, the voters will be reminded that she was a lifelong Republican who switched parties only last October when the decision was made that she was going to challenge uh, uh, Stitt for the governorship. So um, I, I would think, you know, of the 40 percent that didn't vote for her in her primary versus the 30 percent that didn't vote for Governor Stitt in his primary, uh, you start matching all of that up. I mean, it certainly it certainly starts 
out with a high favorability for the governor to uh, uh, to be reelected if the campaign is run well, if there are no big landmines that go off in the process, lots of unknowns and a campaign still to be run. But uh, I'm sure that the Stitt team would be like uh, where they're sitting uh, this morning very much more than what uh, the Hoffmeister team may feel. Oklahoma is getting a new attorney general after Gettner Drummond defeated current AG John O'Connor to face libertarian Linda Steele in November. Neva, what does Drummond do now to focus on the general election? Well, I think uh, I think his big election really has come and gone. I mean, with this victory, I mean, being the nominee, I think uh, I, I don't think that very many people sense that it's going to be a, a competitive fall. Um, but I, I do think that what we saw was a, a repeat slugfest for him to win the Republican nomination this time. And to, as we remember four years ago, I mean, he lost by only uh, a handful of votes, a couple of hundred votes. And and uh, on a Tuesday, he beat the incumbent, John O'Connor, by more than 6,000 votes and basically showed a commanding strength uh, statewide, uh, even though we saw uh, John O'Connor uh, win in uh, Tulsa, I think it was by nine points. They're both from Tulsa, so that was significant. But uh, it was a hard-fought battle all the way to the end. Uh, certainly, uh, Governor Stitt, John O'Connor was his appointment to uh, be the attorney general. He fought hard for him. Uh, and this is one place where uh, it came up short. I mean, they they clearly were trying to do everything they could to uh, help help that campaign in terms of just uh, um, trying to uh, mobilize their people and make sure uh, everyone knew who his, uh, who his man was in that race. But now I think we see uh, the transition begin, and certainly from the comments that were made, particularly through with some of the uh, principal chiefs, such as of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr., mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, the, and some of the others, I think uh, uh, Chief Gary Batten from uh, uh, the Choctaws and others, they basically made the statement that they, they were glad and welcomed the, the fact that there would be an attorney general, they felt, who would respect tribal sovereignty and that it would be an opportunity to repair the relationships uh, between uh, between the state and, and as, as was described, their native friends. So um, I think that's one thing that will uh, be a takeaway from this election is that was a backdrop uh, to this entire fight, clearly from day one. But Gittner Drummond, let's be um, uh, let's give credit where credit is due. He ran a good campaign, a long campaign, and, and certainly um, uh, had a uh, had a had a battle plan to uh, make it to the end, and was successful with that plan. So John O'Connor will remain as the Attorney General until January. So there's work still to be done by by his office and 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 work that he, I'm sure, will want to complete uh, in the coming months. So. I, I was I, I thought it also is noteworthy that the attorney general on election night uh, made it clear that he would he would work for a orderly and smooth transition uh, between himself and uh, Gettner Drummond. And I think that uh, I think that speaks well to the attorney general. And I think uh, it's certainly something that I think the voters uh, respect and like to hear in the aftermath of hard fought campaigns. Ryan. You know, Gettner Drummond lost in one of the, if not the closest statewide election uh, in, in recent memory to Mike Hunter mm-hmm. uh, four years ago. 
and and now comes back and wins this and then it's, you know not as close but a very very close race uh, to to win that primary. So again, you know, congratulations to the you know the you know he still has an independent that he's facing in November, but you know for all intents and purposes he is the attorney general elect uh, in the state of Oklahoma right now. And you know I think that what he starts doing right now is you know to focus on you know closing this thing out in November is that he starts to act like the attorney general. Uh, you know, I don't think that he's, you know, steps into the sp- uh, space of John O'Connor or frustrates anything that the current outgoing uh, attorney general is doing. Uh, but I do think that, you know, Gettner Drummond can begin to lay out the kind of policies uh, and practices that his office is going to carry out once he is attorney general. And he's got a very long runway, runway to do that right now. And hopefully that there will be a lot of cooperation between the, the O'Connor office uh, and the incoming Drummond office. Um, and part of those, part of that is, does the gov, does, uh, Drummond and, and do, do, uh, do the governor and, and Drummond, uh, begin to, you know, try to, you know, bridge their, their divides, you know, whatever they may be. Uh, it was you know, very clear throughout the primary and, and ever, well, ever since his appointment that, uh, attorney general, uh, John O'Connor was the governor's attorney general. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though it's a separate seat in the state of Oklahoma, he was the governor's attorney general. And and Drummond made it very clear that he would be his own person. And that's what Oklahomans have got right now. I think that they have got, again, a very independent attorney general who will work with the uh, governor's office when they think it's the right thing to do and won't be afraid to step up to the governor's office whenever they feel like that uh, it's warranted. And then with the tribal governments, in the wake of McGirt and then now in the wake of the Huerta decision out of the United States Supreme Court this week, um, there are a lot of opportunities, new challenges of working with and cooperating with tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma, particularly on the issue of criminal jurisdiction. And I think that Gittner Drummond has you know, positioned himself uh, to be someone that can you know, step out of the, the current uh, paradigm that has the state you know, constantly against uh, tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma mm-hmm. and really have a more cooperative atmosphere that, frankly, is going to be better for the public safety you know, of tribal citizens and Oklahoma citizens. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.